Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. <laughs> and as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello. I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to The Stages Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Today, my guest is an actor who was amongst a group of Australian theatre makers who were trailblazers in firmly placing the Australian voice on our stages. In watershed productions such as David Williamson's Don's Party. It is my great delight to feature Barbara Stevens in this nostalgic episode. Barbara is an actor of terrific range and her theatre credits include the plays of Noel Coward, Tom Stoppard, David Williamson and William Shakespeare. She played Desdemona opposite Frank Thring in the South Australian Theatre Company's production of Othello. She was in one of the ABC's very early sitcoms titled Who Do You Think You Are? And she's played the stage of the iconic Russell Street Theatre for the Melbourne Theatre Company. She's toured the country extensively, delivering memorable performance to regions in every state. Now enjoying retirement, Barbara joined stages to recount a brilliant career that has provided audiences with thrilling, joyous and always engaging experiences in the theatre. Barbara Stevens, lovely having you on uh, the Stages podcast. Great pleasure, thank you. Big fan. I first saw you in 1987 at the Melbourne Theatre Company. Oh, right. Yeah. That was a big year for you. Yeah, it was huge. Um, in fact, plays back to back. Which is exhausting and I don't recommend it. Because you're performing one at night and, and rehearsing, one rehearsing for the day. And I did three back to back like that. So I was totally engrossed in Streetcar, which was the first one. Wonderful, great play, great experience, all of that. Yeah, yeah. And we got Streetcar on and up and running, and then suddenly you've got to go in. And start rehearsals for Twelfth Night, which was also not, you know, very straightforward. And after about a week, I remember Roger Hodgman saying to me, excuse me, could you please concentrate a bit on this play during the day? Because I was thinking, oh yeah, Twelfth Night, that'll come, I'll work it out as I go. But you can't, obviously. Because and I must say, when I saw Mark Rylance playing Olivia, a bit of it, on YouTube... I was disgusted because he was so much better than I was. It's really rude. But isn't that always the case with actors? Are we ever really entirely happy with our performance? You can be reasonably pleased sometimes, but not if it's a bloke who's better than you are. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) But Streetcar, Twelfth Night... Um, and then A Chorus of Disapproval, chorus of Disapp- so was that Acorn, you, Agborn? Wonderful Agborn, yeah. Different styles of theatre, um, different demands of language, uh, the emotional states. Had to sing in A Chorus of Disapproval too, which was tough on everybody. Extend your skills. Yeah. And uh, three different directors, I mean, Roger Hodgman, Twelfth Night, and was it John Sumner did Streetcar? Uh, no, no, Roger did Streetcar and Twelfth Night, right. and Sumner did uh, Chorus of Disapproval. And uh, I loved working for John. I thought he was just brilliant. I mean, you know, what a character. What a man. Well, John Sumner, a man who uh, started the Union Theatre, which became the Melbourne Theatre Company. He forced it into being. Yeah. What was he like as a a theatre maker? Very solid, very... uh, You knew where you stood with John. And something like a chorus of disapproval, he was really good for because it's a big show, you know, with numbers and a big chorus and uh, a wonderful star role for the great Max Gillies, as I recall. So John was very good at, you know, 
getting people on and off and, you know, all of that, all of that, and had plenty of insights. And But he's a man who goes to the text yeah. and really... As all know, those great directors do. I think Earn so. Earn your yeah. pause, take your breath where the comma is, you know. And he also directed me in The Real Thing, Tom Stoppard, which oh. again is wonderful language. Yeah. And, and Sumner loved the language, you know, that was always prioritised and... Uh, I, I like that, you know. Was he a disciplinarian with, with his actors? What was his rehearsal room like? It was very disciplined, but then most rehearsal rooms are... You, you couldn't walk across his field of vision because <laughs> he'd get really cranky about that. You had to sort of tippy-toe around the back. And you were late at your peril, you know, um, which no-one should be late anyway. Sometimes it happens, but with Somna you'd get there, and I think you do anyway for rehearsals, you get there 10, 15 minutes early, so Warm you're ready up, to start focus. at 10. Mm. He wanted it, you kick off at 10, and you you get going, you work, yeah. Did he have a nickname? Was it Black Jack or Black something? Black Jack, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which he quite liked. <laughs> he, was, he was very commanding and uh, authoritative, great sense of humour. He'd joke, you know. I think he'd... By that stage, life was pretty good for John, you know. The, the company was very healthy. You know, he'd been... He'd done all the really hard work. Wonderful venue, you know. Yeah. The premises. Because that would have been the early days of the Playhouse at the Arts Centre, I, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it was. But you also played Russell Street, that, that wonderful little theatre. Yeah. What was that like, Russell Street? Magic. Yeah. Magic. Not a lot of room backstage, I imagine. <laughs> no, no. We all shared... Yeah, when I did um, Benefactors, the male and female actors, we shared the little dressing room very happily, and it was just four of us. And I'm very grateful because there's tons. there used to be tons of graffiti on the wall, really, really funny ones, and some of them, you know... Actors who played there? Yeah. yeah. And uh, Roger Hodgman, I think, when Russell Street... I don't know what they've done to it now, but anyway, he got the graffiti all preserved Fantastic. somehow, yeah, and recorded. Because wonderful, wistful little things like Bruce Miles at one stage obviously wrote, I'm miles from nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> Had a bad night that night. But also wonderful, Fred Parslow, Frank <gasps> Thring, um, yep. Irene Innescourt, all of yeah. those wonderful actors who yeah, commence yeah. Barry Humphreys. Humphreys, who I think is one of our greatest actors and not really acknowledged as such. You know, he can do anything mm. when you think about it. Well, those those perso- characters, personas that he's created with yeah. uh, with his one man shows. But, but I think we kind of take him for granted in some ways like that. But if you see him in the Getting of Wisdom, yes. for instance, yeah. Yeah, yeah, suddenly it's there's a real presence there yeah. on screen. You know, and he was in that original production of Oliver in the West End, oh, playing right. Mr. Salbury, and he understudied Fagin. Did he actually ever get to play Fagin? I think he did. Well, certainly, I think in the a, a recent revival that Cameron Mackintosh had done, yeah, uh, yeah, he played. Uh, He's played his, his extremely story. fine actor, and I love the thing. Uh, John La wrote a wonderful biography of Humphreys, and he recalled watching Humphreys moving into a new theatre somewhere on tour, and Humphreys wandered out onto the stage and stood there looking around the auditorium and said, "Ah, alone at last." Fantastic. Which is spot on. Yeah. Barbara, who did you play in the pajama game at <laughs> Arts Theatre Adelaide? Poopsie. <laughs> Poopsie. <laughs> yeah. And Ando's hideaway. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh dear. Was that one of your first shows? It was, yeah. Because yeah. I left school not knowing what I wanted to do. I knew I, I knew what I didn't want to do. And I didn't want to be a teacher or you know, a wife and mother. And I was working in a bank, I think, and started doing amateur musicals. And then later on, a, a bit of amateur straight acting. But yeah, we did Calamity Jane and, you know, it was just chorus work, South Pacific. Yeah. So the funny thing was, of course, the Metropolitan Light Opera Company was very disciplined. And, and of course, Adelaide, without a professional venue had a lot of really good people simmering away in the amateur um, companies 
and they were very strict about being professional. You know, you got there on time, you didn't muck around, you didn't, and, and it was good, it worked. But when I went to my first professional rehearsal morning, all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and ten o'clock came and went, and people were still sitting around chatting and drinking cups of tea, and I was thinking, what, what, what's this? This isn't... But that was just the first day, of course, but just so much more laid back. Mm. Wow. Your most recent gig, uh, am I right in saying it was Wicked Sisters in 2003? Yes. Um, Is it the last time you performed? Cause no, no, actually it wasn't Wicked Sisters. It was Five Times Dizzy right. was the last thing I did. But yes, Wicked Sisters was not long before that. Right. So are you retired now? or I am, yeah. 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 Well, I was thinking, you know... Um, in my mid-fifties, a uh, couple of plays a year wasn't really enough to keep things going. Uh, if I could have got a regular role in a TV series, that would have been fine. But I thought doing Five Times Dizzy was such a good experience and I enjoyed it very much. I thought I'll... And, and it went really well with the kids who saw it. And I thought I'll quit while I'm behind, really, and... Uh, no, I went out on a high for me, you know. I liked the play, I liked. I was pleased with what I did in it. Playing a Greek grandmother, you know, not obvious casting. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I haven't done anything since then, almost low these 20 years. Well, it was a career uh, where you work extensively around the, the country on all of the state's main stages. That's a lot of touring. Did, mm. you, did, did you like touring? It's an essential part of the job, I guess. But, yeah. You, but it's you, enjoyable. Pretty much, yeah. Um, yeah, depends on your company, of course, but that was never an issue. Uh, the worst part of touring, I remember, is being trapped on a bus on a very long drive with John Howard and Glenn Hazeldean reading out excerpts from John Laws's book of poetry <laughs> to this captive audience. You know, it didn't matter what you threw at them or how loud you, how loud you screamed, they kept doing it. <laughs> That was the worst part of touring. No, um, touring's hard work. But get, good, it's exciting. You get to see a bit of the country. Yes, yeah. quite a lot of it. Um, and it's great. You know, small towns, you know, people who go to the theatre in tiny, tiny places, uh, you really see the value of it there, you know. The play you were referring to with John and Glenn was uh, Dead White Males. Yes. By David Williamson. Yes. Now, you've been on the ground floor of a few Williamson plays. Mm, done a lot. Um, Money and Friends. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we're in the um, uh, original Sydney production of Don's Party. Yeah. Who did you play? Um, Susan, the young woman that Cooley brings along. Right. Uh, and she kind of upsets the women, married women at the party. Yes. That was 1972. Was it? Yeah. God. <laughs> at Jane Street. <laughs> yeah. But but that play, that production was was really at that, and I, I guess um, the Legend of the King O'Malley were two mm. plays which really turned around how audiences viewed Australian works. At last, we were hearing the Australian voice on stage yeah. and and telling yes. Australian stories. Look, I realised. In the first week of rehearsal, I'd been working professionally for three years and this was the first time I played an Australian on stage. And able to access your own voice, too. Yeah, I was thinking, I don't have to do an accent. Yeah. I don't need a backstory as such. It was quite a an eye-opener. I'd done it on TV, you know, Crawfords and stuff like that, but never on stage. And I wasn't really up to speed on the new Australian writing. Because I'd started working in very, uh, I guess, conventional theatre in Melbourne, whilst, you know, just around the corner in another galaxy, the Pram Factory was, you know, and, and all of that was happening. So the opening night of Don's party in Sydney was astounding to me, the reaction the realisation that people were so hungry to hear their own voices and stories on stage. 
You know, was, I'd, I'd like to talk to some of the other actors if they're still alive who were in that and see if it surprised them as much. I wasn't, you know, I didn't know. The only new Australian writing I knew at the time was um, Hal Porter, you know, writing right. kind of drawing room comedies for, for Melbourne. I knew about One Day of the Year and uh, Summer of the 17th Doll. But the new stuff really was uh, blindsided me, I think, yeah. How did you get the gig of Don's Party? That was uh, auditioning? And... Just auditioning. And, yeah. you know, I nearly didn't go. Right. Because it was on a weekend and I was stuck on the North Shore, having only just arrived in Sydney. I didn't have a clue how to get to Kensington, Randwick. And uh, I actually rang my agent, June Cannon, and said, oh, do I have to go? And she said, yes. <laughs> And luckily, a friend uh, gave me a lift uh, into the into NIDA, I guess it was. And I did the audition and forgot about it and went home again. And uh, yeah, I'm did, very glad I did it. Did you need to audition? I mean, I know we're talking about 1972, but did you need to audition with an Australian piece or you were just reading from the play? Or? Just reading from the play right. and also a bit of improvisation for some reason. I don't know why, but it was required, yes. I suppose just so, because John Clark, who directed it, didn't know me from a bar of soap, I suppose he just wanted to see if I could move yeah. and think as well as talk. Yeah. Well, it was an extraordinary cast. Yeah. Alan Lander, Pat Bishop... Wendy Blacklock, yep. Martin Harris, Mervyn Drake, Ken Shorter, John Hewitt, Darlene Johnson. Extraordinary. Yeah. Extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah, it was... That was a thing. Although I didn't go to acting school, I, I worked with so many wonderful older actors and more experienced actors, I was able to just learn from them, you know, keep your mouth shut and watch. And serve a wonderful apprenticeship. Yeah. And we, we that's how we learn from our elders and the experienced ones. And Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was a pretty her. sensational troupe, I have to say. Yeah. I, I honestly think a bomb could have gone off and they would have handled it, you know. His plays, we're talking about Williamson, are, are very accessible for audiences. What do you enjoy about playing Williamson? There's something about the language. Um, he's so eloquent. He writes. There's something about the, the 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 rhythm and the attack and the choice of words. Certain lines in David's stuff always crack me up for no good reason. It's just the placing in the script. Uh, it's heightened language, but it sounds naturalistic. Well, they're almost comedies of manners, aren't they? Yeah, and bad manners too, <laughs> quite often. <laughs> well, yes, Don's Party especially. Extremely bad manners. Uh, and, and he also writes, I have to say, when he became a father, he writes lovely young men. There are so many beautiful young male characters in David's plays, which I really enjoy. He's sometimes been knocked for not capturing female characters. Eh. Do you agree with that? or No, I don't. I, I just think a writer needs to write interesting characters and yep. just write people. Yeah. Just write a person. Who um, did you play in Money and Friends? Oh, total idiot. Do I remember her name? I played... Oh, no, no, sorry, I've got the wrong David Williamson play. I do remember who I played in Money and Friends. I played Peter Carroll's spouse. I was one of the friends... Um, who was a, a decent woman who was a bit out of her depth in that little group. But, um, yeah, part of a wonderful ensemble again. Yeah. You see, you get to work with... And, and an ensemble that all have very equal roles. Yeah. Generally. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we all had our moments on, on stage. We all had good bits yeah. to do. When I was a drama student, I was ushering and I remember seeing dead white males mm. about 20 times at Her Majesty's Theatre in Perth. 
but that's a fantastic opportunity uh, uh, opportunity to to watch yeah. great actors work and it's quite a dense play too mm. actually there's a bit to think about in dead white males you were the aunt yes mm. i was the arty aunt who uh yeah wayne harris and i discussed what sort of art she did and i thought she probably did these dreadful collages with dead magpies stuck to them and things like that you know <laughs> <laughs> and babs mcmillan was my sister which was wonderful speaking of comedy of manners you've done coward a couple of times yes blithe spirit in in 1975 yes. and, and present laughter in 1990 yes. yeah i love coward again it's language you know the language is that good um i adored that stylistically i think very different to to a lot of other genres yeah interesting thing when we did uh, present laughter um at first the director was gail edwards was actually going for the subtext and it was very difficult and after a couple of weeks she came in and said look forget about the subtext <laughs> just play the you know play it on the surface go for the speed and and she was dead right yeah there is no subtext in those plays you know it's all wonderful let's get to the next laugh yeah and how do we set it up and how fast can we go and mm. all of that yeah and the people aren't that deep <laughs> maybe private lives but why would you it's still about the laughs yeah but I loved it I loved the precision and the wit and lines like don't quibble Sybil yeah amazing uh, you mentioned uh, The Real Thing mm. earlier uh, played by Tom Stoppard that that language uh, you know we're talking about language I think he is one a playwright with, with the most uh he presents the most challenges to actors because there's so much wordplay written within his text. Yeah, and the text, there is a lot of subtext in Stoppard. Yeah, you have to really think. But again, a great writer like that, you can trust. And travesties also at Nimrod. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that was great. That was great. A, a good playwright, a play that's well written, is easy to learn. Have you found that some uh, text is easier than other playwrights' text to to get into the head? Yeah, yeah. Actually, coward, you have to be... You can't paraphrase, you can't make it up. I also think Shakespeare you can't make up. Um, Though Frank Gallagher did very successfully once. (laughs) (laughs) Bless him, because he just got lost. But he made it up in iambic pentameter, which was really clever. Made no sense at all, but... Who cared? But yeah, some of them, some is hard to learn. I can't think of any off the top of my head. But then I've always had a good memory. I've never really struggled with lines. How, how, uh, how did you learn lines? What was the most effective way for you? Read it and read it and read it. Um, and stick you, concentrate, really. I think just read it, do your homework. And if I see something, then it does tend to... Make sense I, of it. I can, yeah, and I can see it in my head as well. I've got a slightly photographic thing. Yeah. And I also use little hints. If, you know, I had a really difficult line change when we were trying to get money and friends up into Melbourne and David changed a line in the afternoon that I had to say that night... And it was a tricky one. And I used to stumble and mess up the laugh because of it. And I actually wrote it on my arm, right? (laughs) (laughs) And when the cue came, I looked at my arm, said the line and ploughed on and thought I'm a real professional now. You know, I I, I can, you know, (laughs) cheat that much. But you can't interrupt the flow. No. Improvising the bard, that's pretty impressive. Mr. I couldn't Mr. do that. No, no, no it's, I, I couldn't I do think that. We did have a standby line from A Midsummer Night's Dream. I am amazed and know not what to say. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody help me. Yeah. yeah. Over to you. Well, Shakespeare, you, you've certainly ploughed a few times with, mm. with Hamlet, A Midsummer Night's mm. Dream, back in 68. Yeah, who, who, who did you play in the dream? Oh, Hermia. 
who was short and dark. And you I was acorn. Tall. Yes. <laughs> but because I was cast as Hermia and Helena was... I was tall and fair and Helena was short and dark, so they cut all, they had to cut all that stuff about maypoles and acorns, which right. was a great shame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Needs Hysterical must. stuff. And I imagine you... Gave your Gertrude in Hamlet, did you? I did give my Gertrude, yeah. which I really enjoyed, I have to say. Great role. Oh, yeah. And John Senshuk had a terrific approach to it. It was a student production at the University of Wollongong, and there were just a few professionals in it, me and, and uh, Andrew, Andrew James. But Senshuk suggested to me that Gertrude was complicit in the whole thing, which I hadn't thought of that leapt on it you know like a tarantula because it's such a good um, way to take it the audience doesn't necessarily have to know I guess but that really worked it all fitted together very easily to the point even at Ophelia's uh, graveside Gertrude is actually drunk she started drinking by then Right, and yeah. making an, uh, being an embarrassment to Claudius and that kind of thing. Uh, and so, of course, by the final scene, when Hamlet's fighting Laertes, Gertrude's just hopeless. Claudius hates her by this stage. Gertrude's drunk all the time. Um, it was good having that, that take on it. Um, comedy of errors. Oh yes, yes. Uh, different skills also in, in playing the comedy of Shakespeare as opposed to the the tragedy. I'm not sure. No. I'm not sure. It's still to do with language, isn't it? It's and still to do with language and attack. You know, and and trust the text and the rhythms. All of that is very important, I think. And if it's, I don't like putting on a comedy hat. I think you should play comedy as though it's deadly serious. Yeah. And I also don't like tragedy. You know, I saw a production of Long Day's Journey into Night. What's when, when the lights came up, everybody was acting the end of the play already. You know. Yeah. The the tragedy was still was omnipresent, rather than taking the journey to the awful final bit. Yes. So I think, yeah. You can't play the laugh, can you? you? You've got to let the laugh happen uh, by getting the text right, setting it up right, and, yeah. and the timing, that, that equation of yeah. text and timing. And listening to the audience. Yes. Yeah, yeah, because uh, they're the final, final factor in a performance. You know, you've got to... They're the last member of the cast, as it were, yeah. to go on the trip. Now, I'm dying to hear about your Desdemona opposite Frank Thring in a Legendary. How did you Legendary. survive that? Uh, needs must. Um, it, was, it was a really good experience. In, I, I emerged from the other end of it, sadder and wiser, because it's such a hard play, mm. right? Um, and Frank acknowledged to me that he actually thought he'd he was too old by this stage. He said it's such a physically killing thing. And he was saying, I think I may have um, bitten off a bit more than I can chew now. He played it triumphantly in his 20s and had always wanted to do it again. He said it had haunted him. How old would he have been when he... He was in his 50s, in his mid-50s, and quite frail in some ways, I guess. I don't know, I was only in my 20s, so... And and in those days, of course, it was okay for him to be, um, you know, putting on brown yes. makeup and playing... Blacking up for the, the role. He yeah. didn't black... He, he was more uh, Moorish, tanned, yeah. Arabic, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it wasn't... And, and wore a turban and, and looked fabulous. But, um... It... it it's such a hard play, and we did the full text, uncut, and that works out at about three and a half, four hours, um, which is, it's like a mountain you have to climb. 
every every show. Was he a disciplined actor? Very. A bit naughty. No, he was he was really good. He uh, he never. I, I think once he might have rolled his eyes at something <laughs> on stage, but never to make anybody go up or or anything like that. And t- there was one night when it, it's gone into legend when a woman up in the dress circle, um, just as we started the last scene, as Othello's coming on to uh, kill Desdemona, a woman in the dress circle started a seizure. She, she got very ill. And the noise, the hubbub became so much that Frank just stopped said to me, I'm sorry, I can't go on. Then turned around and said to the audience, I'm sorry, I can't go on. What's yeah, happening his focus is broken, in this yeah. theatre? Oh, the, the hubbub was huge because yeah. front of house couldn't reach this lady. She was right in the middle of the, the row upstairs and so it took a while to get to her and help her out. And Frank said, um, well, look, I can't compete with that. He said. <laughs> <laughs> and he sat down on the bed with me. I did nothing. He sat down and said, we'll just sit here and have a little chat while they work out what's happening in this theatre. And after a minute or so, you know, having a little chat with the audience, he stood up and said, I'm just going over to the stage management. That's the prompt corner. That's that corner over there. He said, and, and I'm going to find out what's happening. And just before he exited the proscenium arch, he said, keep in touch. <laughs> We've got a huge round of applause here. <laughs> and I lay down, stared at the lighting grid and thought, ooh, this is fun. And Frank came back on after a couple of minutes to another round of applause and said, I've found out what's happening. Poor woman's been ill, but she's been taken away now and, and she's, she's going to be fine, so we'll get on with it. And people were calling out from the front, um, take it from the top. <laughs> but he turned to me and said, shall we take it from that handkerchief that I so loved and gave to you, thou gave to Cassio? And I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> And he said to the audience, see how easy acting is. <laughs> and we went back into it. Wow. He said afterwards, um, he stopped it then because he he didn't want to have to sort of stop it when he was in the middle of actually throttling me, you know, yes. before it got too far. And he was dead right. Um, and it was fine. And when we went out into the foyer afterwards, it was absolutely packed. <laughs> Because the audience just wanted to stay and talk about it. Because, but it was the best demonstration of star power and poise and. And what made me really angry was a few days later I heard somebody saying that they'd heard Frank had been a real bitch right. to the, the woman who was ill. Yeah. And it couldn't have been further from the truth. Yeah. yeah. You know. He was a gent, and I used to cross-examine him about Vivian Lee a lot. And Olivier, because he worked with them. Yeah. And like Barry Humphreys, um, I think one of our country's great actors as well. He became a bit of a caricature late in life. Well, when you're that extraordinary. Yes. Um, but to have that career in Hollywood. Well, yeah. Um, if he'd gone to, if he'd chosen to go to Hollywood, as an American friend of mine said, he could have done all those roles. Henry Daniel, you know, all those wonderful George Sanders, that, that kind of heavy. Yeah. Uh, Vincent Price. Yeah. Because he's wonderful in Ben-Hur yep. and charismatic as could be in the Vikings, chewing up the scenery. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but decided to return to Australia. Yeah. yeah. He, he, wanted, he loved what he was doing here, you know, his company and working with Sumner. And he did wonderful work in his youth, you know. But I guess it, it's a shame. I would have liked to have seen Frank do many, many films. Yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> Everyone has Everyone a frank personation. Yeah. Oh, God. He was terribly funny, though. Very witty. Yeah. Very nice man Great. to me. That's nice to hear. Nice to hear. Yeah. Barbara, describe for me yourself as a child. What, what sort of kid were you? Crikey. Um, bit of a daydreamer. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Read a lot. Yeah, went to the movies. Were you um, harbouring a desire to be an actor as a kid? You know, no, uh, no. I was drawn to entertainment 
because I loved musicals and dancing, loved dancing, but I sort of thought it had to be classical training. You had to have classical ballet training. I loved the ballet too. Um, And that was never going to happen. But, yeah, that rather than acting. But because I did a few things at, at school and I noticed that teachers and whatever would say, oh, that was good get a bit of praise for that so I thought oh I can do this mm. it seems but we always in my family it was, it was working class but we always watched movies went to shows a lot my parents in Adelaide when TV first started they had nothing to program so they showed really really old films a lot right. and so I had a really good grounding in classic cinema yeah. even silence some of them silent movies <laughs> they were desperate. Um, but what an opportunity also to see all of that. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. I thought I discovered Casablanca. I was running around telling people that Humphrey Bogart's got this fantastic speech where he says of all the towns in all the, you know. Yeah. I thought I, <laughs> I was the first one to realise it was pretty good. So you were taken to the theatre? Musicals, yeah. yeah. And they would shows. be uh, J.C. Williamson's, I yeah. guess, that were touring That's through right. or something. Yeah. And I remember the first time that Funny Girl came to town with Jill Perryman, you know, an actual Australian star. Instead of these fairly tepid Americans who used to come out, um, you know, I mean, they were nice, but there was such a raft of talent here waiting to, to do them. So, yeah, seeing Funny Girl with Perryman was huge. And things. My father loved um, things like the Russian uh, choirs, you know, that kind of thing. We go yeah. and lots of music like that. Yeah, and Gilbert and Sullivan. Oh yes, was a lot Love of genius. genius around. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and it's funny. Anything that's funny. Have you ever had the chance to do a genius? Only amateur. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which oh, one was that? Um, oh, we did. We did. Um, oh, the one that. Not Ivanhoe, Princess Ida, Princess Ida, which was and and the what's the one in the Yeoman of Guard? Yep, yep. Which is beautiful music. It is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the music is gorgeous. Yeah. But I think they were the only two I did. But I still love it, and I loved that movie Topsy Turvy. Yes, mm. gorgeous, isn't it? Yeah. 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 The, the, the Savoy operas. The Savoy Operas, and I also think it's one of the best films I've ever seen that deals with the rehearsal process, what yes. it's really like. Yeah, you know, behind the scenes. Cracking the whip, yeah. So when you start to tread the boards in, in amateur theatre and you're getting some praise for that, and people say, suggesting that you could make a, a career out of this, mm. did you think about uh, training? I, 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 Nida was probably the only place where you could train in the country. Did you think about auditioning for a training school? Um. Well, it was suggested to me, and like I say, I hadn't heard of NIDA, but I I suppose I sort of vaguely thought about it. From A friend of mine who was working in the professional theatre in Melbourne got me an audition for St Martin's Theatre in a professional show. So I, I went and I did the audition and I got the part. So I kind of skipped the training bit, the official training, uh, and learnt on the job yeah. with really good, experienced actors. I was very lucky. And good, solid plays, you know, well-constructed plays. And then when I came over to Adelaide to with George Ogilvie and Rodney Fisher and Helmut Bacchiotis to do the State Theatre Company gig, they had a huge training programming for the actors in the company and that's where I actually finally started to do classes and improv and all that stuff I'd never done uh, which was fantastic because of course it was a pretty good group of actors to be doing that kind of thing with you Mm. know Mm. classes with Dennis you know improvising with Dennis Olsen is good fun I can tell you and Julie Hamilton so that was brilliant that was several years of um devising shows all that stuff you guys who go to drama school yeah do all those classes do all the time yeah. Yeah. And, and vocal because God knows I needed that yeah. and movement 
So you start working professionally, and there's some extraordinary jobs which are available to, to actors at that time. And I'm thinking particularly of the ABC doing televised plays. Yeah. And you doing something like The, the Torrents. The Torrents, yeah, which yeah. was a hell of a shock. I really, you know, because I'd never done anything like that. It was so much a case of flying by the seat of my pants. And just... was, was it... Um, uh, Beamed live, or did you pre-record? No, it was taped. It? Right, taped. Right. The grand old days of videotape, and you know, you know. and broadcast in a, a six-play anthology called Australian Plays, directed by Oscar Whitbread. Oh, I mean, imagine something about like that happening now on the ABC. Uh, I can't. No. No, no that ain't going to happen. Wouldn't happen. Yeah, that's right. There was, there was so much, you know, new Australian writing, and, and I presume there is still now, but. Well, um, the Torrents uh, shared a playwriting award with Summer of the 17th Doll. That's right. In 55. Yes. And it had a revival recently. Black Swan and STC performed the Torrents on stage. Wow. I can't remember the name. Who's the author? Oriel Gray. Oriel Gray, of course, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was a good little solid um, colonial drama, as I recall. I'm glad, I'm glad it's been revived. That's, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, Cecilia Bacola. Do you watch um, Rose Haven on the ABC? No. No, no. She's playing the lead. Ah, right, right. Oh, no. I've got such a long watch list. Yeah. It's terrible. <laughs> Tell me about your association with British Airways. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was fantastic. I, I, I was working here in Adelaide and... Originally, for this campaign, they wanted Jackie Weaver and Jackie wasn't available. And so they sort of went, who else is there? There's that girl over in Adelaide. And they said, do you want to, yeah, come to England, come to London for a week and shoot a couple of ads? And I, you know, got permission from George Ogilvy to leave the production I was in for a week, which was really good of him. I have to say. And I got zoomed off to London first class, uh, which was quite a shock to travel first class. You know, I was this kind of scruffy kid. By the time I got off the plane at the other end, it was, oh, monster had been born. French champagne. But it was a wonderful gig in London with a really top-line crew. You know, Graham Lind was the cinematographer and, and fantastic people. And John LeMessurier was in it. Oh, wow. Yeah, right. yeah. So I did that and um, flew home again and rang George and said, you don't want me to come into rehearsal today, do you? He said, yes. So I was still getting over my shots and I was still jet-lagged. Right. So I staggered back into She Stoops to Conquer. Um, and then... When the ad came out, when it was on air, and we went back to a little school that we'd visited the previous week to do school shows, I looked around as we got out of the bus and about a hundred children were racing across the playground to come and jump on me and say, we saw you on the TV in this British Airways commercial. And everything changed. So was that your first taste of fame and and public recognition? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I hated it. <laughs> yes, because you lose your anonymity, don't you? Yeah. Yes, yeah. No, it was just extraordinary after that, as far as that went. Um, and I'm not comfortable with it. A lot of actors are brilliant at it. Um, I'm awkward. Yeah. Yeah. Long before the, the genealogy show, there was a show called Who Do You Think You Are? Oh, yeah. Which was a very early Australian sitcom. Yeah. Which you started. Yes, yes, I do. Written by John O'Grady, son of They're a Weird Mob, John O'Grady. All right, okay, didn't know that. Yeah. And, and he went on to produce uh, a number of ABC comedies, including mm. Mother and Son. That's, that's right, yeah. yeah, which I also did. The, the promo um, that I found for the show, Barbara Stevens, the zany lady from those airline ads, is perfect as the wickedly funny miss called Kelly, who has two big problems in her life, her estranged husband and her oafish flatmate, both more interested in her body than her mind. Ah, yes, those were the days. Now, um, 
Tony Llewellyn Jones yes. played the flatmate. Yes. Yes. And Stephen O'Rourke. Stephen O'Rourke, yeah. Yeah. Fabulous. Gorgeous boys. If you're going to be fought over by a couple of blokes, they're pretty good quality. Yes. But it was one of those, yeah, it was like um, Man About the House, one of those. Yes, know. yes. Yeah. Those, so it was all will they, won't they, and... Was it funny, do you think? Parts of it were excellent. Yeah. I actually think there were some hilarious bits in it. But weekly... Oh, God. You know, doing a weekly show like that, it's tough on everybody. 13 episodes, I think it made. Yeah, and... and yeah. And I remember John Hargraves, beautiful John Hargraves, was a guest in one of them. And because of the time stricture, there was a... You know, in one scene there was a mistake and he, he wasn't able to get one of his best laughs and they didn't go back to pick it up because we had to be out of the studio. You know, it was yeah. that kind of... T- and Rushed. Very disappointing, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of pressure on... It's hard to do comedy when you're that pressured. Yeah. I think. Extensive screen credits, White Collar Blue, Water Rats, Home and Away, A Country Practice. <laughs> Did you enjoy screen work? Um, it's, it's a different it's skill set, different, you think? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I appreciate it, but I like the control you have in the theatre, you know, that you, screen is subtle and different. And somebody said the thing, theatre's about ideas and the screen is about um, emotions and... It's that, that pressure of you get it right, you have to get it right on the take. And that's it. You don't get another go at it. And that's kind of good. If, you, if you're reasonably confident and don't mind surprising yourself, that's always good. But um, I, I can appreciate why a lot of film stars are apparently very temperamental. Right. You know, if... From the, you know... Somebody talked about Tom Cruise having a huge spack attack because he got accosted on his way from the van to the set by somebody but he's already in the zone yes you know yeah. and the money's all on him mm. um, that's, that's a huge tension I think and it's not such a controlled atmosphere as a theatre I love the high wire act of the theatre are you able to look back at your screen work when you have the opportunity to, to, to view it and enjoy it, or like most actors, do you squirm? I you avoid it at all costs. Oh, really? I don't think I've seen anything, not willingly, I can't think of anything I did that was particularly high quality, quite frankly. I mean, of my contribution. Yeah. You know, say your lines and. Don't bump into the furniture. Don't bump into the furniture. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sips, or were you superstitious in the theatre? Nah. No. Nah. No. I think a lot of the superstitions are very practical. Not so much the Scottish play, but what's the point? Hmm. I don't get it. There's enough <laughs> can go wrong without you. Uh... Yes, um, putting the moz on yourself. Yeah. No, no, I, I don't believe in that. Did you read reviews and, and take note of them? Or? Um, yes. Yeah, of course I did at first. But then after a while... I stopped because it didn't matter if it was a good review or a bad review, really. Um, It finally... So often they were so off the mark (laughs) that even if it was praise, I didn't... I don't mean for me personally, I mean for for the production. I thought, well, it's not actually worthwhile. Um... Some reviewers, yeah, I would trust, but no, no. What was your favourite part of the theatre? The wings, the dressing room, stage door, centre stage? That's a lovely question. I love being backstage in a big theatre, you know, in the scene dock and everything, and you can hear the show happening up front and you can look up and see all the flats and the lights and the... The ropes and that, you know, that just makes my hair stand on end. I love that. And, you know, 
all the bits and pieces of the backstage thing and there's that great sort of presence out front in the auditorium I love an empty theatre too <clears throat> not, not during performance no but I remember once coming in uh, to you know coming in through the front of house um, here it was a beautiful Michael Pierce set for the Comedy of Errors at the Union Theatre and I came in and saw the set up and lit for the first time and it was heart stopping yeah it was such a beautiful set and in this lovely theatre. Yeah, I, that's what I love. That's what I, I also love standing in the wings, watching an audience, I should say in the past, yeah. standing in the wings and watching as much as you can see of the audience. Because that was a big eye-opener for me, actually. Um, watching Rookery Nook, George Ogilvy's hysterically funny production of Rookery Nook and Dennis Olsen was on stage being hysterically funny and the audience suddenly exploded in laughter huge belly laugh and they rocked backwards and forwards you know like a wheat field for a few seconds and I was about 24, 25 and I suddenly thought God this is a wonderful thing to do for these people you know because just for this time they're forgetting all their, you know, pain, all the stuff that's going on in life, and just enjoying a huge belly laugh. And I thought, yeah, this is this is a service for people. Should be more of it. Well, Barbara, thank you so much for the service that you've given audiences over over many decades. Um, you too are one of our great actors, Australia's great actors, and and it's been my don't roll your eyes, Mr. Thring, Mrs. Thring. <laughs> it has been an absolute delight to, um, to chart your career and uh, share some anecdote today, so thank you. It's a great pleasure, Peter. Thank you. Barbara Stevens has contributed enormously to Australian theatre. What a journey it has been. Such a delight to celebrate her brilliant career and joyous anecdote in this episode. I consider myself most fortunate that I've been able to witness some of those great performances in theatres around the country, and I hope that you've had that pleasure too. Thanks for joining us in this episode. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, and I'll catch you next time. <laughs>